Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On today's episode, I have a great conversation with my friend Doug Thomas. Doug is a designer, historian, writer, and teacher. His new book, Never Use Futura, just came out yesterday and is this really wonderful cultural history of Futura that looks at the enduring influence of, of that typeface in everything from Stanley Kubrick and Wes Anderson to Field Notes and Nike. And he is also an assistant professor in the graphic design department at Brigham Young University. Doug and I met when we were both graduate students at MICA. He was a year ahead of me, but we bonded over our shared interests in writing and criticism and history. Doug had just finished another graduate degree in history and was at MICA in part to turn the research he did in that program into a book that he could publish. And it was really fun for me to watch that process each step of the way. In this episode, Doug and I talk about that and the process of writing the book and why he decided to go back to school to study history. We also talk about why it's important for designers to know history, the role of writing in his design process, and why Futura is this endlessly fascinating typeface. I always really enjoy talking with Doug, and I'm so glad to finally record an episode with him. The book is a a truly great read and out now, so I encourage you to pick it up and enjoy my conversation with Doug Thomas. about this I was kind of planning the things that I wanted to talk to you about and we've been friends for a couple years now but I don't fully know all the pieces of your background of kind of how where your interest in design came from uh, and then specifically where the history part came in and so I wanted to start there and and let's start with the design part because you studied graphic design in undergrad right? Yes, yes, yeah. That was that was my undergraduate degree at, at Brigham Young University. Um, and where did that? How did you decide graphic design, or where did that interest come from? Um, well, so I I think I think in some ways I've always been interested in graphic design. I just didn't know that's what it was called. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and and I'm probably like many design students in that regard. Um, but I had I would guess I was lucky in high school to have a, a art art teacher that said, you know what the kind of art you're doing is probably a little bit more like graphic design. Mm. You should really maybe consider that. In fact, he invited me during my senior year to participate in the yearbook. And that maybe more than anything else really helped me realize like, Oh, there's this thing where I can combine typography and images and content and, and create interesting stories. And as it turned out, I loved that experience. It was one of my favorite things of my entire high school experience. And and so I was kind of enthusiastic once I got to college to start doing graphic design proper. And so so when you were in school, were you thinking, you know, that you wanted to be a kind of practicing graphic designer? Was that kind of the goal? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think the other thing that happened maybe around my senior year in high school as well, uh, I got to job shadow a, a local graphic designer for a day to see what they were doing. And it just was so intriguing to see how someone could turn visual ideas and art into commercial products, whether it be, you know, CD album covers, which were big in the late nineties and you know, early two thousands or, uh, or even like kind of the early website designs that were just starting to crop up. Those things were just kind of amazing to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just imagined this would be a way that I could have a great job and continue to do art. And, and create my own artwork and design through my life. So so I don't want to... There, there's a piece of your career that's interesting to me, and I'm trying to figure out exactly how to kind of ask this question because um, I don't want to skip over important things. So I'm going to kind of go right there, and then we can fill in the gaps if we need to. Yes, yes. But it seems when I look back on your career and kind of what you were doing before we met and then kind of what you were doing when we met is that you kind of had this career as a designer, you were you were doing some teaching, I think, and then you kind of took this turn that is seemingly out of nowhere into going back to school to study history. That's right. So how, I mean, my, I guess my question is just why and how? 
Um, well, so I, I guess I had this sort of bug in my in my ear about history from from a professor that I had in my undergraduate ex- experience, okay. where I just happened to to meet him because I designed a poster for one of one of his, uh, I guess, a play that he was really interested in. That it was a, he was a German history professor. Uh, I designed this poster for Nathan the Wise, which is a great German play. Okay. He loved he loved the design, and so he said, "Hey, you know, can we talk about it?" And I thought he was just gonna maybe sing the praises of the of the of the poster or something, <laughs> which he did. But then he said, "Actually, you should really audit my uh, history of ideas class because." There's there's a lot of these deeper things that are going on in your poster that relate to big ideas, and I said, oh sure, you know why not? I'll 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 do that. Um, I was I was working full time at the at the at the time, but I was still connected to campus enough that I could audit a class. And as I went through the class, I realized like there was this bigger conversation about um, the the way that something like a design artifact would connect to big ideas of right. philosophy and political science and of uh, economics and just culture in general. And I thought, wow, that's really amazing. I, I don't know if I want to just, you know, keep my design into this little channel of, of, of just being a, a commercial designer. I want to be able to be part of this larger conversation. Um, and so all throughout this, I, I you know I had this interest in, in still being a, a designer, but I also wanted to connect it to these bigger ideas. And so this professor, uh, Paul Carey is his name. He's he was a professor here at, at, at Brigham Young University, but then he's actually now at Oxford University. Um, he encouraged me to just keep developing this this skill of of, of looking at ideas more holistically, and in fact mentored me a little bit in in history such that I could prepare to go to the University of Chicago and actually study history proper. Okay. Um, and the, the one thing that was great about that, though, was that throughout all of this, I still had this deep interest in design. So it wasn't like I was just jettisoning design. Um, so when I, But the, the thing that I discovered is that there were really no sort of design criticism programs or design history programs, at least in this country. I think there's... Yeah. There's a few in in England and and the Netherlands that have started to crop up. So, oh, so you had you you were interested specifically in design history. This you were not kind of it was not history in general or history of some kind of other. You you definitely still had this kind of design lens that you were looking. Yes, through? yes. I mean, okay. I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how tight to to focus that right. Like, I I was interested in bigger history questions. I love. I mean, I'm a history nut in general. Okay. I love those bigger questions. And I wasn't sure if, if I got into this history field, would I just go straight into, you know, maybe doing other things like material history or cultural history or, or even just European history in general. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was interested in how that intersected with design. So, so one of my first projects in history was actually studying censorship mm. just because so many, so many artifacts in 20th century design history, especially in Germany and Russia or East Germany, I should say, and, and Russia and, and parts of the Eastern Bloc were created in, in conditions of heavy censorship. And, and, and that sort of mediating factor was really interesting to me. Um, and then later when I started thinking about type as, as a medium of, of language itself, um, I realized that was a really great way to integrate, you know, history and design in, in a unique way. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I love that you brought up, kind of material history or material culture, because that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about that first history class that you audited and kind of realizing how there were these artifacts that you could connect to these larger ideas and kind of anthropology and material culture has become this subject that has ended up becoming, uh, comes up a lot when I talk to people as this kind of adjacent to design history. When you were in that, that class that you were auditing, before you kind of went to study history proper were you were you looking were these objects that you were looking at pieces of graphic design that you were were you seeing these connections kind of right away um a little bit in part because i'd had a great graphic design history class in my undergraduate but but also at the same time we never made the the connections explicit right so to say how does how does architecture connect to type history and how does that connect to what people were designing in general? Those connections aren't usually made that explicit. And yet this professor was 
showing all of that stuff except for the graphic design, except for the typography. <laughs> right. And in fact, actually, I got so excited about it that I did kind of a, a my first presentation on on in his class. Even though I was auditing, I did a, like a whole class project on the history of type as it related to his his class in terms of oh, the different eras of ideas. Um, and looking back on it, I think I could probably probably could have done a better job, but but still, it was just like this really exciting moment to say, "Wow, type you know affects these ideas and they connect. They're not separate things." Yeah, I mean, that's I want to come back to this because this is something that I I was really wanting to talk to you about is this idea of kind of how history connects to things and that they're not just this kind of series of events or series of artifacts or objects but that you can kind of connect to these other things but i want to finish uh i want to finish this this kind of part of your story when you w went back to school to study history in chicago and i don't mean to to make this question too simplistic but kind of what were you thinking was kind of the next step or what were you hoping to get out of that program um well to be honest i was hoping that it would lead to uh perhaps a phd or something else that oh. would be a so it was a master's program, but I was hoping it might lead into a full academic degree. But to, to some extent, I actually had no idea what was going to be next. I, I quit my job, which was you know a great job that I had was you know working full time, making good money, doing publication design. Okay. Um, it was actually a little bit scary because it was right uh, kind of in the middle of the recession. Um, right. So not not exactly like the right. great time to just quit a job, um, but. But yeah, so I, I thought I was going, you know, moving away to Chicago and I had no idea what was going to happen next. Um, I just knew I needed, I really like was so passionate about studying ideas in, in greater depth that I just felt like I had to do it. Was it, uh, again, this question is going to sound overly simplified, but was it h hard to bring in your graphic design training or background or your interest in design history into a general history program? Um, yes and no. So in some of the classes, it was a little hard because they were expecting just uh, more standard historical research um, on, on kind of general topics. Because to some, because I this was my first, some of my first history classes, some of the right. classes I took were a little bit more like a survey course. But I, I really lucked into taking a contemporary European history class from a professor there at University of Chicago. Um, and the nice thing is he is, he was, a, he's from Germany. And so maybe just because Germans love design, maybe more than Americans do, <laughs> he, he just latched onto the topic pretty, pretty quickly. Um, okay. and he, he just, um, yeah, uh, he, he loved, he loved what I was doing. Uh, and that, that really kind of his, his encouragement, even though he wasn't necessarily a designer or even a type designer or, or knew a lot about the history of, of design, he was enthusiastic about me exploring that as a way to talk about culture. Right. I, so we're, we're now, this is where it gets hard for me as an interviewer, because we're now at the point of your history where I know kind of what happens next, but I want to kind of fill in the, the blanks for, for the listeners a little bit. Um, because I know that you when you were there is when you started you discovered kind of that Futura had this really rich history or this kind of interesting history that you were not aware of or just, you know, kind of kind of set up where the interest in Futura, because that's obviously where this story is headed. Yeah, so so the the first thing, I guess, I, you know, is in this contemporary European history class and we were thinking, you know, I was trying to think, what, what can I research and write about over an, a course of a year that would be interesting about this. And I thought, well, you know, I could start talking about typefaces and maybe how they, how they were integrated into America. Cause there are these <laughs> fantastic European artifacts of design, right. That, that have basically conquered the world. Um, and the, the documentary Helvetica had come out a few years before. And I thought, well, you know, that maybe that's a starting point, but I also thought, well, you know, that's kind of been done and, and, and I don't, I don't want to just, uh, rehash the, the history of Helvetica. So I thought, well, maybe there's something else. And, and I, I, but I didn't know what that was going to be until I was at the kind of in the, the archives of the university of Chicago and came across a document, 
they'd been written in the 1920s saying, hey, you didn't go wrong on modernism if you listened to or, you know, if you if you followed the inland printer. And it was funny to read this because it was just it seems so newsy and so much like all the blog topics that we have today. Right. You know, it could have been a design observer thing, <laughs> right, it could right. have been a brand new. It could, you know, could have been something by, by Cameron Moore or something like, hey, you know, I, I helped you around this this big problem of modernism. You know, right. you could have inserted, you know, responsive design. You could have inserted mobile phones, you know, web, you know, whatever the new topic is. Modernism was it in, in the 1920s. Right. And it, then as I read it, I specifically realized they were not just talking about modernism in general, but they were talking about typefaces. And mm. Futura was one of these typefaces that for them represented, you know, the, the evils or the, the ills of modernism um, in some regards. And I thought, wow. I always thought Futuro was just this amazing, beautiful thing that everyone wanted. I didn't know that some Americans were hesitant about it or that they were trying to stand off from it. Mm-hmm. And and so I guess realizing that it was a contested history and and in this case, one that as graphic designers, we've only been presented with the tales of the victors and of the kind of the triumph of modernism in it's in, in that sense. We've never right. been told who were opposing that movement, who were, who were thinking about other alternatives, um, really got me interested in saying, oh, there's a whole thing that I could explore here. So I, I, I think this is interesting because I, I've talked to a couple kind of design historians, people like Teal Triggs, who, who's kind of you know, rooted in, in history. But I, I think this is interesting because you then discovered, this is, this is a topic that I, I can't really ask a lot of other people that I've talked to before and that you kind of discovered this curious thing in the archives and then realized that this is the thing that you were going to spend the next couple years of your life <laughs> devoted to. So I, I, I kind of want to walk through that process a little bit in that you kind of realized that this was this potentially fruitful topic. What's next? Like, what do you do after that? How do you start to pick apart that history? Well, I, I guess I also lucked out in in devour like in the in some of these old trade journals, discovering that there were some very passionate editors that wrote about typefaces very specifically. In, in fact, I even came across one editor who would who would do this. I think he called it first the tally of types, and he would count the number of times a typeface had been used in advertisements every like month. Yeah. And he'd pick like some of the most popular ones, like Vanity Fair or um, I don't know other other magazines. And he'd say, you know, which typefaces are hot this month? And oh, interesting. And I mean, I guess sort of like the the you know the most popular fonts on my fonts of its day. But what was amazing <laughs> to me was that you could then, with very s- simple numerical kind of counting, understand when a typeface had really hit the mainstream and at least in advertising um, and in a way that I'd never thought was possible. So I guess it just kind of, that in a very specific way got me really excited about it. And then I just kept working on it in part because I, I mean, it was, it was a a master's thesis and I needed to really work hard on it. But the more I read and the more I discovered, I just realized there was a lot more there. Um, And after I finished the, the research that one year, you know, to some extent I thought maybe I'd put it away. Um, I'd gotten a, a job uh, working as a designer again. Um, oh, okay. So I was, so I wasn't sure what was next actually going to happen next um, in terms of the, the project. But in the, in the back of my mind, I had this professor who said, actually, this is really good. You should, you know, it's not ready for publication right now. Um, but you should really develop it into something because it's highly original. It's it's unique. It's not it's not the kind of thing we've seen before. Um, and so, in part, thanks to that encouragement, I, I had this idea like, you know, what, I really need to broaden this for, maybe for a design audience or for a, or a general audience. Um, and so, I started looking at at, at um, programs to to do that or, or ways to do that. Right. Uh, yeah. So you were looking. You were looking at. MFA programs with the goal of taking this research that you had done and putting it into some sort of book for designers. That was kind of the plan. 
More or less. I mean, I also had alternative plans. Like maybe I thought I should go get a PhD and just keep writing about right. this and, right. and turn this into some dissertation. Um, I, I mean, and I also had the kind of the, the secondary idea that, that doing this would also enable me to teach because I right. kind of developed a passion for that right. after being an adjunct professor. Um, so it wasn't like there was just, this wasn't the only thing driving that, but, but it was certainly a big part of it. Right. Um, I'm curious how it was received in the history program for people that maybe didn't know anything about graphic design or had never even mm. maybe heard the word Futura before or, or knew anything about typefaces. Was this, I mean, designers love this, this kind of thing. Did, do historians did historians find it interesting also? Um, you know what I, I mean? I think generally, I, I actually, one thing I, I'm, I'm excited to have happen as the book comes out and I can send it to these former professors is actually get a sense of how, what, you know, what they make of this new incarnation of the same research. Mm -hmm. um, but what I think they liked about it was that in history in general, there's actually been a shift in the last 30 years away from only talking about people, only talking about big wars and big events into talking about culture in terms of talking about um, ideas themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of ways, this was maybe a more specific and maybe a more micro version of, of the same mm -hmm. histories that others had written. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I remember reading a really fantastic essay about how Coca-Cola influenced teenagers in Germany as like mm -hmm. an example of really excellent history in one of these classes and thinking, well, hey, if someone can write about Coca-Cola as a as a historical artifact in in right. culture in Germany, like someone has to be able to write about Futura or about typefaces or about design as this in right. the same kind of way because this shouldn't be that you know shouldn't be that different. <laughs> yeah. But so before before we get to your time at MICA and kind of turning the book into to a more um, I don't know commercial project i guess for lack of a better phrase what is it a, i i i feel like this is something that we should talk about specifically is what is it about futura and futura's history that makes it so interesting for someone who has not read your book yet because you know there are and the reason i ask this and i'm playing a little bit devil's advocate uh because i know some of the answer but you know there are hundreds of typefaces and you know, let's be honest, not all of them have as interesting a history or as much an influence as Futura does. Can you kind of sum up, you know, I know this is in the book, sum up kind of why this specific typeface is so rich and interesting? Yeah. Um, so I think, I think a couple things about, about why, why Futura, okay. um, first, I guess it hit it, it maybe the right time, like the right time. And, and I, I think often we don't recognize how, how much a, an effect timing has on, on typefaces becoming popular. Mm. Um, it came out just shortly after world war one and, and even more, more specifically right when there was funding available to the German government to recover from, from uh, the effects of the war. Um, so there's a short moment between that funding and when the depression happened that, right even typefaces from Germany made it worldwide. But then secondly, I think the unique thing is that the, the designer of Futura, um, he had these, I mean, there was a, these ideas by, by a lot of German designers about simple geometry, creating, creating typefaces from shapes like squares, triangles, and circles, and saying, could we make something that was right. maybe a typeface that's specifically for today, that's industrial, it's not, it doesn't have any, relationship to handwriting like all of our other type mm -hmm. does and I think in some ways what 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 went well with Futura is that he took that idea and 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 ran with it in a way that was also wedded to some of the oldest traditions in typography so mm. whereas some of his some of his contemporaries um, at, at the bow you know that were working at the Bauhaus and other places they did things that were a little bit more maybe more interesting in terms of an experiment of just outlandish shapes and, and, right. and, and, and things. What, what Paul Renner did was he said, I'm going to take the, the most timeless geometry 
in terms of the proportions, not not just the circle, square, triangle, but let's use the old Roman proportion of the double square. Let's use the lowercase sizing of, of a Garamond, and let's give it some of those kind of historical proportions that make it feel grand in its own way. Right. And and still have this then this un- unbelievable modernist um, sense. And so I think in that sense, his was was a little bit more timeless in its in its background even though it still felt absolutely of the moment very fresh and entirely avant-garde um and so i think i think i think that's i think for me that's the reason that that people latched on to it is that it wasn't quite so out there as some of the the yeah. other experiments but it was still so fresh so so you could kind of bridge the the space between extreme modernism and and um and yet something that was so traditional that that it hardly looked new. I mean, the, the, maybe this is a good time to start talking about kind of this idea of history as kind of being this, this kind of series of artifacts versus these kind of lenses of which to talk about these kind of bigger, larger ideas. Because to me, that's what's so interesting about the book and what makes your book so interesting. And I remember very clearly the first time you the first time we met and, and you said that you were writing a book about Futura. And I, I remember thinking that sounds interesting, but it also sounds like it could be kind of boring. Like how interesting <laughs> is, is, uh, is this history going to actually be? And the, the book I think is, is endlessly fascinating because of that history, but also because you use it to talk about things that, you, you kind of go beyond Futura also. You use the book to talk about how branding works. You use it to talk about kind of counterculture and how, uh, you know, corporations can co-opt the, the aesthetics of counterculture or you talk about politics. And so then this single typeface becomes this, uh, you know, almost nucleus for you to talk about design history more broadly and, uh, you know, in, in all these kind of various avenues. Was that a kind of conscious decision? It was a very conscious decision in part because, so even though there was this, all this research I'd done at University of Chicago and wanting to just do a straight history of how Futura became popular, mm-hmm. I also had this kind of question in the back of my mind coming from my undergraduate days, which was when I was told by a professor to actually not use Futura right. in my work. Right, right. To, you know, literally never use Futura and and being caught up with this contradiction of why would professors tell you to not do this when it's all over the history books. It's been and, and even if you're looking at contemporary designers, oftentimes some of the best designers are using Futura and you're thinking, you know, why is my professor saying I can't do this when all these other great people are? Right. And and so that contradiction started to, to kind of burn in my mind. But I also realized that as I was teaching classes, that this was a question that wasn't just something that was, you know, my question alone. Almost every student I've ever taught has this burning question, like, what makes a good typeface appropriate for the certain situation? And how can I know when it's appropriate and when it's not? And in some ways, it's a really hard question because there's yeah. no there's no there's no simple like formula. And and if you try to apply the formulas of, of, you know, 20 or 30 years ago of what, you know, this is this typeface for this exact thing, you create pretty boring work. So, right. so, so what I realized is that if I wanted to tell this story and actually make it relevant to, to current students and to current designers, I was really in telling this story about how type becomes its own language. Yeah. Right? That, it, that, that a typeface is not just, it, it morphs from being just a simple artifact that was used you know, maybe by a handful of avant-garde designers into being a, a larger language that uh, can be both about how it's used, but why it was used. And then someone else takes it and runs with it in a different way. And it, and, and, um, and you, ha- you have to talk about why they did that too and, and how that then changes the conversation. And in that sense, Futura became a perfect story because there's very few typefaces, you know, maybe Helvetica is another and, you know, maybe there's a handful of others that became so popular that there was really a, a, a global conversation about the, you know, a, around this typeface. 
um, even though maybe people weren't realizing it was happening. I mean, I I love that, and that's what I think is so. That's what I thought made made the book so interesting. I don't mean to just keep talking about you know how interesting the the book is, but that it's something that I've found myself thinking about since reading it because you know spending time spending two hundred pages kind of reading about Futura suddenly everywhere I look there it is in places that I had you know streets that I've walked on every day I and I it never registered, but. I, I, this question about kind of appropriateness and wh- how what how typefaces come to represent things, wh- what was interesting to me is how Futura represents today in 2017 can both still represent kind of the future and the past. You know, it's we think of it in 2001: A Space Odyssey, which still seems futuristic, um, and it's on the moon, but it's also on field notes, and then it's in. Barbara Kruger's work and it's on Nike ads and it's just this thing that can can represent everything. So how how do you even then pick apart when it's appropriate or when it's not when it's so pervasive like that? Yeah, that's 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 a great question and I think I think to some extent it's it's difficult because obviously there are people that use Futura without any knowledge of why and how the history happened. Right. And, and sometimes it can be really great. And there, and I think design does function on a formal level enough that you could say the composition was good or their spacing and kerning was good. But, but for me, what became interesting was when I actually started digging into the stories was realizing that that's actually not how it was working in most of the really successful cases Mm. that for the really successful designers, they were consciously referring to past artifacts in the case of say Aaron Draplin or, or, or in terms of Nike, part of what made it successful was the ubiquity when of, of that typeface, when it was starting to happen as a, as an advertising typeface or, or now it's, it's consistent use over now, you know, almost 40 years of, of just, basically drum drum beat use of future you know bold extra condensed um and making sure that like that's now imprinted in our minds as as the nike typeface um realizing that like really the, the best designers are the ones who are most adept at picking apart those conversations as they've happened in the past and not just saying oh it's everywhere and so i can use it any way i want mm-hmm. but actually picking apart the nuance because it because as it turns out even though Futura is used in high and low places right it can be used for high-end fashion brands and also low-end supermarkets and 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 you know big box stores right it's 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 not used the same way in all of those in all of those instances right so so right. there's a different there's a different look for the big box store than and it and in, in this case part of what makes Futura work is that it's a family it's not just a single style mm-hmm. right so yeah. so there's a light there's a bold there's a medium there's a black even that is rarely talked about but there's part of the family too and and they're different enough even though they hold together that that you can kind of start to have different voices within the same family How, i something i wanted to ask you and this this leads right into it perfectly is i'm i'm gonna this is a two-part question i'm kind of asking personally in your own experience and then also a little more generally, I'm. I was really curious how studying history and both history of Futura, but then just being in a history program. What if you found that that brought anything new to your design practice or uh, changed how you thought about design? And then the second part of the question is a little more broadly of just kind of the general value that you see and you started touching on this a little bit in knowing the history of these things for designers working today what is the value of kind of knowing and understanding design history what a great question um i think i think maybe i'll answer your second well maybe i'll start with your first part of your question um with the value i guess what what i found in in doing a, a kind of a traditional history program was that at first, I thought maybe coming into that 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 the history of design or typography would be this really out there eccentric way of looking at history. Mm. But what I discovered was that historians are asking interesting and unique questions across the board. So 
in my cohort of, of fellow students, they were all asking really interesting questions in terms of history of sexuality or history of economics or history of all sorts of even subcultures within mm-hmm. larger national groups. And I thought, oh, you know, if there are space for these stories, there's there's a lot of um, interesting space for talking about typography. Um, but but one thing that I guess helped me about the study of history specifically, and I think is is a useful tool for designers that I think we we do practice, but we're maybe not as formal about it. And that is, I think his, historians traditionally have been very good at looking at original documents, right? So let's go back to the archives. Let's go back to mm-hmm. what was done originally and trying to understand what happened when it ha- when that first came out in its context. Right. And let's tell a story about that original context and, and how that's developed. And a lot of the best designers I know have massive libraries where they, they have their, you know, their history right. books in essence, right? They, they might not call it their history library, but it is a history library. Right. Um, you know, you, you go to a lot of places. I mean, uh, uh, Brian Collins has an incredible library. I think Pentagram has an incredible library. Like a lot of these great studios have incredible libraries. Yeah. Um, or if, you know, and, and most of the type designers do too. If you go to, you know, Jonathan Heffler or Tobias Fair Jones, they all have incredible libraries. Right. right. And, and I think one thing that designers who are practicing interest, you know, doing interesting design realize that all design is a, is, is a, a remixture is a, is a recontextualization. Mm-hmm. And, and if you understand where it came from, it's, it's, it doesn't actually stifle your work. It actually helps you make new combinations in informed ways so that it's not just derivative. Right. Um, because I think the, the and this is I think one thing that I know was hard for me to admit when I was a young artist. Even and this is actually kind of funny to admit. I didn't want to take an art class until probably middle school, even though I probably should have. Because I thought if I took an art class, that I would I would be taking orders from someone else and I wouldn't be able to create original work. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> and it, which is now I like I look back on it and think how did I even think that because. Um, actually there's, there's a great artist, um, from back in the, I guess the 1800s, um, who wrote about this idea, um, that, that you actually can't be original if you haven't studied other people's work. Right. And right. Cause his, his basic idea is that there are other people that have had better ideas and are a lot smarter than you are that have arrived at your solution. And if you don't inform yourself with their work, you're going to just come to that same solution and think you're the most brilliant person in the world. Right. Yeah. And suddenly you've just discovered that you came up with an idea that someone came up with 200 years ago or a thousand years ago. And you're really not that original. Yeah. Um, and, and I think true originality is, is the person that acknowledges that, but then can then bring some new aspect to it because of their personality and their interests, but not just say like, I invented, you know, the, the, the sandwich or something that has right. been around forever. Um, I, I, I love, I, I've never, you've connected a couple things that I, I think about a lot that I have not kind of fully put together. Cause I'm, I love when you were talking about kind of so much of design and so much of creative work in general is this type of remixing or kind of putting together pieces that kind of already exist. And I, I always like to use, um, I, I read a lot and think a lot about collage as an art form. And I've come to see kind of all graphic design as this type of collage of kind of taking all these pre-existing parts and putting them together. And, and so I, I very much agree with that. But I also love the knowledge of history. I, I, I hadn't fully thought about the value of studying the history of these things because then it gives you this kind of added dimension to put things together in ways that you otherwise wouldn't be able to connect or to see two different parts uh, from two different points in history that you could kind of put together. And it allows you to take those pieces and push them forward. And so it's not just recycling trends, but it's taking Mm -hmm. things and that's how that's where progress happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a really. I love how you've just stated that. I think I think I think progress does come through um, recombining new ideas, you know, recombining the old with the new, yeah. and 
but but I think the the more the be, the better able you're able to inform yourself about where that came from. Sometimes you can come up with new solutions that that are really fantastic. Because I mean, for example, looking even at Futura as a as a design artifact, you realize that it was trying to solve specific problems right. and 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 also and solving specific needs in the market. And even if you were to come up with a different design, you could come up with designs today that would look different than Futura, but solve some of the same mm-hmm. problems right. that you know that that you know say Paul Renner was trying to solve back in the day. Or you could say, hey, I understand why a company like Volkswagen would want to clothe right. its its advertising in right. in Futura. Maybe today, in today's context, Futura is the wrong typeface to do the exact same thing. Right. But but that understanding of why they've done that suddenly opens up questions of, oh, oh if I was wanting to, to make that same feeling today, how would I get, go about that? Um, and yeah. I, think, I think that's the real value of design history is that you can start to tease out the why and not just the final output. I love that. Yeah, that's, yeah I love that. That's, that's so great. I want to I wanna shift, shift topics a little bit because I'm really, something that I'm really interested in and uh, because I kind of watched you go through a little bit of this process, but that taking I, something I'm very interested in is this idea of audience and kind of who uh, who design writing is for. And you took this very academic kind of research paper that you wrote and have turned it into a book that's very accessible for designers uh, that is not you know, all your research and the academic rigor is still there, but it's very easy to read. It's very friendly. It's very approachable. I'm very interested in what that process was like for you kind of figuring out, you know, both as a, as a historian or, you know, as a historian, as a designer, as a writer, what was that kind of editing process like? And how did you kind of think about working through those, those problems? Um, that's a great question. So I think I think for me, a lot of that transformation occurred thanks to the program at MICA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll give a, a couple just shout outs to to Ellen Lupton, who who is the you know one of the co-directors of that program, is along with Jennifer Cole Phillips. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the fact that they've been deeply committed to this idea of design writing for a long time, right. um, and really trying to tell stories. And so, in fact, I'll also plug just for a second, even though I'm, this, I guess, is ostensibly about my own book. Um, Ellen has a book about design is, you know, design and storytelling, right, I think right. it is the title um, that's coming out. So, so, so if you want to learn what I learned from, from her, maybe, maybe read some of her book, but, I love it. Um, but the other thing I should say about this is that one of the things I learned in, in this class and, and, and one deep commitment that I think Mike has had with some of the people they've hired, you know, they had Elizabeth Dickinson and I, I think now Abe Berkson has been doing this yep. um, and David Berenger is they've hired great journalists who are interested in, in, in telling stories. Right. And the, I guess what I learned at MICA that I didn't maybe fully understand when I was at Chicago and I might've gotten there perhaps with, if I continued, but is just that stories are a little bit different to tell than just, academic recitation of the facts. Mm-hmm. And and I think the best academics do this in their writing. So I'm not trying to say that this is something that's separate from academic writing, but but sometimes it can get very easy as a as or as an academic to say, I need to make sure I I set down the facts, the truth. Right. And and then lose sight of the fact that there are there are details that are interesting. And and what starts to make that interesting are are are, are, are the kinds of things that you see and smell or the, or the ways that you would feel. And, and, and even though it, it sometimes, I know there's a lot of, of talk around stories as being maybe fictional versus fact, you know, the fact, right. I actually think, I think in a way stories are helpful because they're actually the way that we process information. And if we tell things in just a cold, these are the facts only we're actually missing out on, on, on what's actually happening as well. Right. There, mm-hmm. there was emotion there. There was, there was sights and smells and ways in which people were processing this in, in a deeper way. And so I think to that end, I think good storytelling is an essential part of, 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 um, history in itself, actually. Did, I, did you, I remember 
when you were kind of presenting on the book, when, when you had kind of finished your MFA, you made a comment in your thesis presentation about how you had never considered yourself a writer, really, until mm-hmm. you kind of were in that program and, and really started kind of editing this into to a book of stories, I guess you could say. Did that... I'm. I'm I don't know if I have a question there other than like I would love for you to kind of elaborate on on that kind of really thinking about you know a lot of the research was there and now it was just about crafting these stories. What what was that like and and how does that kind of relate to your interests in design and and history now thinking about yourself as a writer? As a writer. Yeah, such a great question. Yeah, it was. I think it was unique just to to realize that um, as much interesting facts that I could. I mean, part of what really came out of this was was the learning process of writing drafts and handing them off to people at, at school and mm-hmm. saying, "Is this interesting?" And sometimes people would say yes, and sometimes people would say, "No, not really. This isn't quite there yet." <laughs> right. And, right. And 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 what what I discovered was that even if I had all the best information there, unless I found interesting leads, if I found unique ways of telling the story that people just didn't care. They didn't, they, they didn't, they didn't get at the bigger ideas. They, mm-hmm. they would kind of glance over them. And so what became the hardest part of the, the book was actually, I mean, there was a lot of research and, and, and actually one of the things that I should also add is that while I was at Mike, I continued to do a lot of research. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just that I took what right. I'd done in Chicago and, and reformatted it. Um, I basically had to start from scratch because once I realized that that I was going to make this book a book of essays or stories, um, I had to start start over and find new leads and oh, find new new angles on each of the stories. So even though I had kind of a broad outline of maybe some of the things that I wanted to cover, some of the chapters were completely started and 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 new without any information that I'd researched before. Oh, interesting! Because, I didn't realize that. Uh, um, so like, I mean, like certain things that I only discovered while I was there. In fact, one of my favorite chapters is actually one that has, maybe it's ironic to talk about this in the writing process, but it was essential to the writing process, was I did, Ellen encouraged me to do a, a photo essay mm. as a way to just explore and like document every instance of future that I could find. Yeah. And um, that ironically became a very important part of the writing process, even though I also included it as just a photo essay in the book because I realized that just going out and observing things and mm-hmm. being able to describe how they looked and how they felt in the lived environment was a big part of talking about it. Yeah. Uh, and then also getting the encouragement from her and also um, Elizabeth Dickinson and, and others to, and Dave, David Berenger to, to actually talk about maybe even insert myself as a character, which was a little bit of a kind of a scary prospect. Right. But but in some cases to say, what's my relationship to Futura personally? Not just not just in terms of designers generally, not just in terms of the historical moments, but me as right. you know, as, a, as my my own person and and realizing that in some ways that made it far more relatable to read yeah. and, and actually even in some ways more universal because typefaces are very personal things. You know, we're reading our mm-hmm. the, the you know the story of our lives in in, in typefaces and yeah um, and as such, it's hard to kind of separate them from that just visceral personal experience. Yeah, that I that's so interesting. I have um, we're headed into kind of the final final part of the we're we're starting to to get short on time. So I kind of want to ask you a series of questions that um, some of them are kind of specific to what we're talking about, and then some are the the questions that I ask all of my guests, but. I'm, I'm I'm curious kind of how this book and this process has, has it changed how you thought about your work and kind of what you're going to be doing next and kind of, you know, uh, like, I, I guess what I'm asking, what I'm asking is, did this kind of change your career at all? And not in like, you know, this big, you know, I've written a book, but do you want to do more historical things? Um, did it change the type of design work that you do? Did it change your, your process? Did it change how you teach? You know, just how is, how is it, how did it change you and your work? Yeah. Um, what a great question. 
it's definitely changed a lot of things. I, I know, I, I don't think I would have come out of, of writing a book and, and thinking that maybe some of the, the, the things I would do in my career would be writing new essays or talking about new stories. And now, you know, if I look down kind of the list of projects that I want to start, half a dozen of them are all these, you know, and, and these are just the ones that are kind of burning at me right now are, are essays that I want to write, stories I want to write, oh, or even new books that I want to go on. Um, in part because I, I really enjoyed the journey of, of this, um, of this process of making the book. And also I should say it was, it was in addition to writing, it was also a really fun experience to design the book because right, I, right. I got to do the whole design as well. And so having that kind of complete experience of designing, writing and, and, mm-hmm. and editing the book, uh, kind of has whetted my appetite to do it again. Oh, nice. Um, but it's also, I think, affected my, my, my teaching in the sense that I guess, well, in in the sense that it was impossible to separate my teaching, my research and my design as it was being produced. And it's been impossible to separate it afterwards. Mm. Um, because so many of the questions that were interesting to me about writing the book emerged in in the classroom setting as I was teaching and, What's been great is to see then how I've been able to then transform them. I'm excited to be able to use chapters in, in future classes. Um, and then I, I just imagine that that conversation will continue. And I, I, and I think maybe my, my ear will be a little bit more attuned to the moment when, you know, a student might say something that's, you know, surprises me. Right. Or maybe when I'll say something and have a reaction from a student that surprises me and realize, oh, there might be something there that, yeah. that this is this is a place where – you know, students as, as 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 maybe consumers of education or as 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 budding academics or young professionals. This is this is how you know they're coming at design from not not caring about it to now caring about it and now wanting to become a become a designer. But you know they're not enmeshed in the whole conversation, and so in some ways they can give a fresh perspective that that is un kind of untrammeled by all the conventions yeah. and uh, and so. Yeah, I'm, I think it's changed just the way that I might look at, at the classroom as a, as a as a space for 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 learning as a professor myself. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you are you bored with Futura yet? Like, do you feel like this is a part of your life, like the rest of your life now? Um, it could be. So, so <laughs> um, I'm not bored by Futura in part okay. because I, I think in part because I'm not just talking about. Like the, the 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 one moment of its creation or something, right? Um, and and in fact, actually, since writing the book, there's probably been at least two, maybe even three chapters that I've thought of adding if there's ever a second edition. Um, mostly because I realized there was gaps in in things that I wanted to talk about right. that could easily be filled with a great conversation about Futura. What, what what what's the what's the sequel called? Is it like no seriously, really <laughs> never use Futura? <laughs> maybe it might be that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I've I've also thought about maybe just other subtitles. So be, you know, never use Futura unless you want to you know create a masterpiece right, yeah. or something. Um, I love it. But um, yeah, although I've also thought about doing a similar kind of project for other touchstones of of 20th yeah. century design. Yeah. Um, so, so actually, one project that I'm kind of just starting the very beginning process of is is actually writing at least maybe an essay, and maybe I'll see if it becomes a book. But but about the the effect of of um, American Gothics, like Franklin Gothic, News Gothic, yeah, and for me, which are a little bit interesting because it's another typeface that I absolutely love. Um, but but even more importantly, I think in in an age when when our relationship to the news has has been so fraught, mm-hmm. looking back at at typefaces that were created specifically for news consumption, right, might be an interesting way to kind of start to have a conversation about news today, um, and and how we consume it. I mean that leads in perfectly to what my next question was. I was curious, what are the whether his historical or contemporary what are the kind of issues or topics that you think designers should be thinking about talking about designing for right what are what are the issues pressing designers right now um that's a great question um i think i think one of them is just the relationship of 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 
truth and fiction, I guess. And yeah. I mean, that's that's come a little bit starkly in in relationship to the last election for for many people. But I think what's interesting to me is that that was true for a lot of people on the other side of the of the of the coin, you know, within the last few years too. And so so I think a lot of the culture is actually having this you know, a lot of Americans are having this conversation about what is true, what is not. And I think if anything, that's going to become a more pressing question as we, as everyone has, I mean, now now everyone has in their pocket a tool that can create expert work. Um, We're all going to have augmented reality, virtual reality in our pockets within a very short period of time. I mean, the the iPhone 10 is, is, is kind of a major step in that direction. And and if anything, some of these questions that that kind of exploded in this last election are going to even become more fraught right. um, than than ever before. Um, so so I think there's definitely, and I think that as designers, we're we're used to creating these sort of mediated spaces. So what does it mean for us to? Right. We should be able to talk about them maybe better than everyone else. Right. Right. And yet and yet we're also entering a space when when. Designers are not the only ones privileged enough to, you know, mm-hmm. set type and to make videos yep. and to post information on mass communication. Um, right. And I think that's actually another transformation that 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 is is interesting. Is I think designers used to be kind of a gatekeeper, maybe maybe not very able to be much of a gate, but but yeah, but everything would pass through a designer, or a lot of things would pass through a designer or a printer or someone that would be the kind of the the mediator between that and the, the mass public. And, and even if there wasn't a lot of, of maybe censorship or, 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 or changes to that information as it's going out, there was still, someone was typesetting it, someone was putting it into a format, someone was editing it. Right. And a lot of that's changed, right? Yeah. Now everyone is, now, now everyone's a designer, everyone's a writer, everyone's a, a their own TV producer uh, of their own kind of mini series. And, right. and I think those questions are ones that, that, designers and actually the, the you know society at large is going to have to grapple with for quite some yeah. time yeah i love that my last question is i'm i'm i would love to hear kind of who the writers the historians the design writers who have really kind of influenced you and the way you've thought about your work and all of these things or the ones that you would kind of say these are the people you should be reading looking right at. um so, so I will, I will say the one, the one that kind of really influenced this book specifically was actually Paul Shaw, who's a, yeah. um, a writer and historian in, um, in New York city. He wrote, he wrote a fantastic book about Helvetica and the New York subway, right. uh, that was maybe a little bit more specific on, on one, uh, instance of, of a typeface being appropriated for a whole system, but still was one of the things that just blew my mind that, Hey, you could, you could really dig in deep and talk about the influence of a single typeface on, on the way it, it functions in society. Um, I'd also have to say that Christopher Burke, who's a historian writing in, um, in England, uh, his work, I mean, he wrote the first biography of, of or the, major, the first major biography. I shouldn't say there's been other shorter ones before, but his was, his was the, the best biography of Paul Renner. Oh. And, and what, what, what amazed me is that, I mean, there was just so much, great information about him as a person, but he continues to do amazing work in terms, especially in terms of, of covering the, the work of, of kind of early 20th century designers. Uh, he, he just finished a few years ago, a really amazing, uh, book about isotype and, oh, wow. and the effect of, of, of their systems. Um, so he's doing, doing excellent work. Um, and then there's a whole crop of, of amazing, um, amazing kind of design writers and, and thinkers that are coming out of, some of the PhD programs in England. Right. Um, so actually one that I just met that is doing some great work, uh, his name is Ferdinand Ulrich. Um, so oh, he's, he's at university of Reading. Uh, he actually just had an, an essay in, in a recent, another, actually a German book about future that just came out oh, uh, last year. Right. Um, but, but it's been fun to see him start to write things. He, he just did a piece about, uh, in the, the latest, uh, I magazine about, kind of the early digital revolution in type in the eighties. Oh, interesting. And it's fantastic because it's, it's a period of time that I think has been overlooked a little bit 
in history writing because when it happened, people were just writing about it as a technical thing that was going on. Right. And and we're just now maybe entering in a period that's it's far enough away that we can start to contextualize it and say, this is why it's important. Right. So, Doug, thank you so much for talking with me. I've I've loved this conversation. I've loved getting to to know you over the last couple of years. I feel like I've learned so much from from you and from kind of studying close to you. And congratulations on the book. It's great. You should be proud of it. Um, I think it turned out uh, amazing. So thank you so much. Um, hey, you're for this very welcome. And everything. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, yeah, look forward to future conversations. This episode was recorded on September 29th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.